Greetings and welcome to the fourth episode of One Thing Led to Another. My guest for this episode is American author Ian Tregillis. He is a science fiction and fantasy writer who is the author of the alternate history trilogy, The Milkweed Triptych, and he was also a contributor to George R. R. Martin's Wildcard series and the author of the Alchemy Wars trilogy. He has authored several other serial fiction and novels, and he is also, interestingly enough, holds a PhD in physics from the University of Minnesota. I can tell you one thing about Ian that I found most striking in our conversation, and that was how unbelievably humble he is as a writer. He is incredibly to, he's incredibly quick to thank others for helping him along the way in this writing journey, and often and sort of sees himself as just merely a man among giants. Um, I can assure you that reading some of his books that he is an incredibly talented author and certainly deserves all the praise he's received, though I'm sure he'd be quick to deny that. Um, but that does bring me to a good point and probably one of the main points that you should take away from this conversation with Ian. And he had such a heavy emphasis on how writing doesn't have to be, uh, you don't have to be alone when it comes to writing. Writing is at its most successful when it's a collaborative process, when you're taking your manuscript and you're giving it to writers groups for critique you're going to friends and family for critique and ideas often that's how the your best work comes to be you don't have to be the writer in the vermont cabin in the woods just typing away incessantly on a typewriter Uh, you'll go insane if you do that um and it kind of goes along with what we were talking about in previous episodes about having confidence as a writer having your work critiqued before it's ready is an incredibly anxiety inducing thing and something that I think every writer should do their best to almost practice to practice having their work be critiqued because that's the only way you're going to get better if you think of any other skill in life um, you need to be constantly critiqued in order to constantly improve so um, that's one of the many things that Ian spoke about in this interview there are so many other worthwhile lessons that I hope you'll pull from this as you listen um Another reminder that we're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Reach out to us there. Email us at one thing led to another podcast at gmail.com. And please drop by my personal site at noahfinko.net. So, without further ado, this is the interview with science fiction fantasy writer Ian Tregillis. I certainly hope you enjoy it. And please check back next week for episode five. And hopefully after that fifth episode, you'll be able to find us on Spotify. That's the newest goal I set aside for myself. I will warn you that likely these episodes won't be coming out as frequently as I'm heading back for my final semester of college. I'm unbelievably excited to be done. It's been a great experience, but I'm ready to move on with my life. I'm also getting married soon, so a lot of my time is being wrapped up with that. But either way, this is the interview with Ian Tregillis. Uh, do give some of his books a read. Again, that is The Milkweed Tripitech. Uh Go check out George R. Barnes' Wildcard series and also The Alchemy Wars. Um, but this is Ian Tregillis. Enjoy. Hi, is this Noah? This is, yes. Hi, Ian. Hi, hi. I think the best way to start would be just uh, if you could give us a general background about you and your career and um, your writings, preferably. 
Great. Um, well, my name is Ian Gillis, and I am the author of uh, seven professionally published novels. Um, I like to tell people that I write uh, lowbrow escapism, lowbrow genre escapism. Uh, I'm also the author of a number of uh, published short stories that have appeared in a variety of venues. Uh, I've been writing – I started writing – in 2003, um, and when I say I started writing, I mean that I, that's when I made, made the conscious decision to start trying to learn how to write. Uh, I had just finished grad school and had moved about a thousand miles away from my friends and family and was living in a very tiny town and didn't have much to do. And so I took the opportunity to make a promise to myself because I had Probably every writer you talk to is going to say the same thing, you know, but I had always wanted to write. But um, when, when I really started feeling the urge, it was while I was in grad school still. And I'm not much of a multitasker, so I knew that if I started the long process of learning how to write and learning a craft, then it would just slow down um, my other work. So I waited until I, I finished my degree. Um, and I knew that it would probably take me a long time to learn the craft. So when I had lots of free time in my hands, that's when I started. And I, I, I do kind of regret that decision, I'd say. I think it was, you know, I'd be further along in my career if I had understood sooner that life was never going to just magically tell me this is the time when you write. I had to realize that even after I'd moved and had all this time on my hands, even then I had to make a conscious decision to carve time out of my day, you know, to, to learn the craft. Um, but anyway, I did that in 2003. I joined an online writing workshop. Um, actually, it's called the Online Writing Workshop for Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror, uh, which I wholeheartedly recommend to anybody. Um, who find themselves in sort of the place where I was at that time. Um, I think it very much accelerated my my ability to learn the basics of craft. And I actually still have writer friends to this day that I met online in the writing workshop. And then the from the writing workshop, I sort of uh, graduated up to going to Clarion. I applied to the Clarion Writing Workshop, which is a six-week residential writing workshop for genre writers aspiring genre writers. And after that, um, actually while I was at Clarion, um, one of my instructors that year was uh, Walter John Williams, who has written many, many novels and won numerous awards. And he took me aside and said, hey, I noticed that you live in New Mexico. Um, when Clarion is over, would you like to join our local writing group in New Mexico? And then he sort of paused and he got this sort of mischievous look in his eye and said, yeah, you know, we, we keep telling George R. R. Martin what's wrong with his books, but he never listens to us. <laughs> uh, and I thought he was kidding, but, well, you know, little did I know that when I when I moved to New Mexico to take my job, I had placed myself in the middle of a very, uh, uh, very extensive network of very professional, very, very successful science fiction and fantasy writers. There just happened to be a lot of them in northern New Mexico. So um, I joined that writing group um, and sort of learned from at the feet of, you know, people far better than I am. 
Uh, and then through that, I, I met my literary agent and so on and so forth. So I think probably the um, too long didn't read version of the story I just told you is um, it's better to be lucky than good. <laughs> That's what I always tell people. Um, you know, I had a long series of being at the right place at the right time. Um, and I I guess I have to apologize for that because that just probably isn't very helpful to other people. <laughs> Um, so when it came to being in these writing groups, were you working on your first novel during that time? And did those writing groups sort of help it come to completion? Or were you working on several projects at once? That's a good question. Um, well, as I said, I'm not much of a multitasker. Um, mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I'm, I know a lot of writers who will always have multiple projects going. Um, I, I, to this day, I really haven't mastered that. Um, you know, when I was on the online writing workshop and when I was at Clarion and then my first maybe year or two in the writing group, um, which is called Critical Mass, which is still going today, um, it has many illustrious, uh, um, you know, alumni. Um, I was focusing just on short fiction uh, because the standard advice to upcoming, at least in the genre, is, is to learn how to write short stories. And there's some logic to this because y- you can spend a lot more time focused on the craft, you know, sort of the sentence level craft, right? Because sentences are sort of the atoms of stories. And also, if you spend a month or two or even three months writing a short story, that ends up not working. You only lost one or two or three months or for a lot of people only a week, um, whereas it can take a year or much longer to write a book. And so, uh, the, the, you know, this is a very logical thing to tell people, sort of start with short stories. And that's why I was still trying to do a short story a month for Critical Mass, which meets on a monthly basis. And one of the things that keeps Critical Mass very professional uh, is that it has a play, uh, uh, pay-to-play rule, right? If you want to come and participate in the meeting, you have to bring, you know, just submit work for others to critique. Hmm. So that it doesn't devolve into one or two people writing and everyone else just, you know, throwing stuff out and write. So I had to come up with a short story every month. But I'm not real good at that. So after a year or two, I said, guys, I had this idea for a practice novel. And I have no, you know, it's not intended for publication. I know I don't know how to write a book. But if I had the plot for a novel, I could spend all my time really focusing on craft not coming up with a new short story idea every month. And so I had this idea, because I had a, written a series of sort of connected short stories back in my online writing workshop days. So I had sort of a vague outline for a, a sort of a fantasy novel that takes place during World War II, or actually during the Cold War, after World War II. And I said to them, I know this is a really stupid idea, but just as a practice novel, do you think it would be okay if I did this? And they turned around and I said, well, Ian, first of all, this isn't a stupid idea. This is actually a pretty cool idea for a book. And secondly, this isn't one book, it's three. Because <laughs> what you've described to us is the middle book of the trilogy. So if you want to tell us the story that you just described, you have to write one whole book to set it up, and then you've got to tell the story in the book that you envision, and then it's going to take another whole book to wrap up all the threads. And they were completely right. Uh, so to answer your question, um, I started out with short stories, and then my first novel, which was intended purely as a practice novel, I did purely through the writing group, 
and it turned into a practice trilogy. And then, again, through more of that, uh, it's better to be lucky than good, um, you know, sort of good fortune. Um, I had an agent by that time, and then she took an interest in the project, and she managed to find a publisher for it. So that was my first my first three books, the Milkweed Triptych, which was published by Tor Books. So then what what kind of draws you to this science fiction and fantasy genre? You mentioned earlier that you like to think of your novels as, you know, a bit of escapism. Is that is that what kind of draws you to creating these worlds and creating these sort of fantastical settings and stories? You know, I've always I've always loved science fiction, um since I was very, very young. And I um you know, I always write for myself, um, you know, I, I don't have any illusions about writing uh, for a great cause or because I have something important to say. I do it, really, at the end of the day, I do it to entertain myself. And so, for me, the joy of writing a novel is sort of the joy of creative expression, the, uh, the thrill of telling myself a story and sort of seeing the story unfold. Um, even if I have it all planned out before I start. Um, so, you know, I sort of gravitate to the kind of storytelling that I enjoy, the kind of escapist at the end of the day, you know, when I had a long day at work, you know, what would entertain me kind of thing? What would I find fun? So, uh, yeah, it probably is my love of genre that, that you know, goes back to my childhood. So then when you have an idea or a premise for potentially a novel or even a short story, What's your next step? Do you immediately go to character? Do you jump to the end? I've heard a lot of different things from different authors as to how they proceed when they think they have a really good spur-of-the-moment idea. Well, that's a good question. Uh, so usually the idea for my next novel or my next project lands when I'm about halfway through the one that I'm working on, you know, halfway through the thing that I have to finish. Uh, and so I, I let things percolate in the back of my mind for a long time. Um, I'm not the kind of writer who likes to write uh, without an outline. Um, sometimes people like that are called gardeners, you know, um, people who just plant the seeds and then they just write and they watch sort of this garden come up around them. Um, I am not comfortable doing that. And so I'm more, um, you know, the terminology I've heard sometimes is gardeners and architects. Um, I'm definitely not a gardener, and I definitely would not compliment myself by saying I'm an architect. Because when I hear architect, I think of someone who you know, is really talented and very skilled and meticulous. But I am an outliner. Um, so, and I'm, I'm a slow thinker as well. So, you know, I'll let I'll have some idea for a novel, and I know it's going to be the next thing I do. But it will sit in the back of my mind for a year or two years. Um, you know, the the book that I'm planning out now actually has been in the back of my mind for about five years. Um, my fourth novel, Something More Than Night, started out as an idea that I had 20 years earlier, long before I was writing. So that gives me a lot of time to, you know, kick things around. And um, I often tell people that I can't start writing until enough completely unrelated weird ideas have sort of collided in the back of my mind. Um, you know, because you, you hear snippets of conversation or you remember a dream or you read some very interesting article, you know, published by the Smithsonian or who knows what, anything at all. That's all, you know, when you're a writer, that's all grist for the mill. 
And sometimes two ideas or thoughts or sensations or memories that seem completely unrelated will sort of magically click together in your subconscious. And even though it seems on the face of it that they should not have anything to do with each other, they click together and you go, aha, that's the missing part of my book. And then I'm ready to write. Um, so when that happens, then um, I start with plot. Um, uh, and again, I, I wouldn't compliment myself by saying that I write well-plotted books, but it is the thing that I focus on when I'm trying to get the skeleton of an outline. Right? So I have sort of a scenario, and I kind of have a world. Um, and the sort of the vague idea of the plot line gives me the spine. And only then do I really look at characters. Um, I admit that I'm very, very mercenary when it comes to the characters in my novels. Because when I have enough of the other information, then I ask myself, okay, who is a person living in this environment or living in this world or, you know, subject to this situation who would have a really interesting problem? You know, what are the most interesting problems in this situation, you know, people could have? And then so I sort of reverse engineer. Um, usually I end up reverse engineering one or two people. And then the rest of the world sort of comes with them. Uh, but I admit I'm very mercenary in that way and probably kind of unusual. I wouldn't be surprised to hear that many other writers start with character. So the way I got familiar with your work, Ian, was with uh, The Alchemy Wars. I read through that series, and what one of the most intriguing parts of that series, to me at least, was the world you created with this, you know, the idea of New Amsterdam, the Dutch being behind the mis- this mechanical army, and I became really infatuated with the world, but my question is, is when you create a world like this, how do you avoid the rabbit hole of world building? How do you tell enough about the world that it's it's enchanting, but it's also still mysterious? Boy, uh, that's a great question, and I wish I knew the answer. <laughs> um, I, to be really honest with you, I would say um, I don't know how to do it. Um, I felt the entire – well, first of all, first of all, thank you very, very much uh, for the kind <laughs> words about the, the Alchemy Wars trilogy. No, I mean that sincerely. Um, that was a really tough uh, trilogy to write, and so I appreciate you picking it up and writing it, and thank you for – uh, for doing that and for the kind words. Um, you know, people tell me, oh, I really love the world building and the alchemy wars. How did you do it? And I, um, I don't know. I guess if you, if you have to walk a tightrope at some point, if you don't fall off, you get to the other side and you say, oh my gosh, how did I do that? Um, you know, it was, it, well, here's what I can tell you. I can tell you sort of the process, what I experienced writing those things. Um, I felt that, World building, when I went into it, I felt like world building was not a real skill for me. Um, I, you know, I think there's stuff in my other books that maybe puts the lie to that, but I didn't feel confident going in when I realized, oh my gosh, this, this project, which incidentally started out as, I again intended to write only one book in the universe of the Alchemy Wars, and once again, Someone turned around and said to me, actually, this would be better served as three. So I'm really bad at knowing how big a book is going to be. But that aside, um, I realized almost immediately, oh, my gosh, this is different than anything I've done before. 
because I have to construct an entire world from scratch. And so um, basically on every single page of, you know, the manuscript for all three books, I would hit something where I'd say, oh, wait a second, how would that work in this world? Or what would that look like in this world? How would people do that in this world? What would people think in this world? Um, and so a lot of the sort of what I call zeroth drafts, you know, the, the as-typed initial pages of these books devolved into long digressions where I was explaining things to myself. Hopefully I managed to edit most of that out, you know, from what eventually got published. But it was a lot of sitting at the keyboard and thinking, hmm, oh yeah, if you had a mechanical man on a ship but the ship, you know, the ship, you know, the shipbuilders guild had certain rules about the behaviors of these mechanical men. Would they modify your servant? You know, all this deep in the rabbit hole stuff that no one, you know, readers don't care about, but that I had to know to try to make the world halfway believable. So I think the strategy that I landed on, and I, I don't know if it was successful, but to do kind of the thing you asked about, you know, how do you kind of give the details of the world without getting bogged down and getting tedious about it. Um, I would think it through to the point where I felt comfortable thinking, yeah, okay, that's probably, you know, a, a reader who asked me about this particular aspect of this thing on the page, I could give them sort of a cursory answer. And then if they were really persistent I could go a little deeper and give them a more a, a deeper answer to their question. But that second layer I don't necessarily have to put on the page. But I still have it in the back of my head because it informs the world building. Um, and then, you know, my philosophy is, and this also pertains to my philosophy about writing magic as well, sometimes you have the really, really persistent, you know, readers who want to really dig in and they're not satisfied with the first level questions and the second level questions. They're gonna they're gonna dig down, you know, into the um, into the foundations, right? They're gonna try to pry up the floorboards of the world building. And whenever I feel like I'm writing something that might tempt those readers to go get a hammer and start pulling up the nails, um, you know, that's when you have an explosion or an airship crashes or someone runs into the room with a gun. Right, because I think of those things as sort of chaff that you throw in front of the reader's eyes to distract them from the questions you don't want to ask. So again, I get the answer to your question, and I'm very, very mercenary. <laughs> so building off of that, then now that you've had several novels published, and and, and we we can call you a career writer. How much do readers have an effect on what the novel becomes? to be at the end um are you making plot points and constantly thinking about you know how will the readers take this will the readers like this or do you as you said before write for yourself and then just hope the readers will enjoy it as well uh i write for myself and hope that the readers will enjoy it you know i hope they'll go along with me yeah yeah definitely you know i i hope and again i wouldn't claim i I manage this but i hope that my books have like an internal narrative logic Right, and that they're true to the characters. And so once you sort of set the ball rolling, the characters are going to do what they do. Um, and I, I try to make sure they're not doing things just to advance the plot, but they do things for their own reasons. And then there's the law of unintended consequences, which is like the greatest tool in the world for plotting a book. 
they do whatever they do, and, you know, there's going to be conflicts between the characters and the world and vice versa. And so if there's an internal narrative logic, it's just going to go where it has to go. And hopefully, you know, readers will come along for the ride. And sometimes they don't. You know, sometimes I've gotten angry emails from people saying, I can't believe you let this happen. I can't believe this character did that or this character wasn't thinking logically or, you know. Yeah, that's fair. That's totally fair. So what kind of, what kind of pushed you to sort of focus in on alternate history when it came to your settings? Because both of your three book series are sort of this alternate universe, but set within Earth. Is is there a reason for why you did that? Or did that just kind of happen when you were creating the plot? Um, the truth is, I, again, I don't know. Um, I, I still haven't managed to psychoanalyze myself enough to figure out why I keep doing that, um, why I keep writing these three-book series with sort of a historical element, particularly since, um, you know, I don't have a background in history. I'm not a historian. I never studied history. Um, so, you know, projects like that involve quite a lot of research for me. Um, yeah, I really don't know what it is. Um, I know why I gravitate towards putting magic in my stories, even though I'm a scientist. Um, you know, and that's just because I, you know, if I tried to write something sort of hard science fiction that was sort of technically rigorous, I, I would, it would feel more like work to me. You know, magic is a very nice um, rug that you can sort of kick the leaves under to quote another writer friend of mine. Um, but why I have to keep mixing magic with some historical event, I, I honestly have no idea. Have you been surprised at any opportunities while you've been writing? Um, or have you been surprised by how many instances you've actually relied on your doctorate in physics? Has that, like, come about to help you in your writing process ever? Um, a little bit. Not a ton. Um, you know, in my first trilogy, The Milkweed Triptych, it involved characters with unusual abilities, right? Basically superheroes. And really early on, um, I think even back when it was sort of a vaguely connected series of unpublishable short stories, I had this kind of cockamamie idea that each power, you know, would be something that we've seen before, you know, in comics or movies. But the, 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 the hook was going to be that each person could violate one law of physics, but no others. Um, and I, I, you know, I sort of patted myself on the back and I thought, oh, what a, what a, what a smart, irritate way to do superpowers. Man, I threw that out the window so fast. Because, of course, it's completely untenable, right? Because, I mean, everything is linked. You can't just break one law and then have everything else be logically rigorous. So, you know, that, that definitely was, um, you know, me outsmarting myself. So I, I threw that out the window, and I, I hope the books are much more fun for that. In in my fourth novel, my standalone novel, Something More Than Night, there is quite a lot of sort of physics in that. Um, you know, it's, it's a sort of a murder mystery set in heaven amongst all these angels, but the angels are able to affect reality, which means that they're really affecting the laws of physics. So I was able to put a lot of, you know, physics jargon into that book, um, which is really there as window dressing, but I, I hope entertaining window dressing. So I, I guess I, you know I guess the seven years of grad school 
um, you know, help me to put some some colorful window dressing in one book. <laughs> so, as a writer that kind of came up in this more like social kind of atmosphere with writing, um, what advice or you know what was your experience when it came to having your work critiqued so often um, by so many other writers who? as you said, were, you know, far better than you at that point in time or whatnot. And and this can relate to writing or this can relate to, you know, sort of any anxiety someone might have when just telling a story, say, at like the dinner table. How do you how do you overcome that and those anxieties and then take their criticism while also holding on to that original idea? Um, I, I'd say the, the most the most important thing is to go into it, those interactions you know, those transactions, to enter them with real humility. Um, you know, I, I knew when I started, you know, at the very beginning, when I knew I did not know how to write anything, um, I, you know, I sat myself down and I said, you know, this is going to take years to learn, if you ever do. And so, you, you know, don't, you know, don't get huffy when people try to help you and don't get huffy when people try to give you feedback. You know, take everything that people tell you in good faith, receive it in good faith. Um, and then that has served me very, very well. Um, now, that's, um, of course, when I critique, I also try to critique in good faith. An important skill that kind of goes along with that to, to the, address the second part of your question, um, it takes a while to learn, but once you sort of have some experience receiving critique and giving critique, you know, the best critiques come from people who are help trying to help you tell the story that you want to tell. Mm. You know, they they recognize what it is you're trying to do, and they try to help you get there. Um, sometimes you'll get critiques from people who, you know, miss the mark, they don't understand, or, you know, once in a while you'll get someone who just wants you to write the story that they would write, you know, or wants you to write a different story. So it's an important skill is sort of learning to identify that and then setting the internal filter accordingly. Um, you know, someone, you know, if a really great writer like Walter John Williams, whom I mentioned, gives me a very specific piece of advice, you know, Walter has written more books than I can count. He's probably written more books than I've ever read. So, you know, he, he knows where I'm trying to get to. And so I, I will take the specifics of his suggestion to heart. I might not implement them, but I will hear what he has to say and recognize that he has identified something real to address. Other times, you know, you might identify, okay, this person is giving me this advice, which isn't going to help me tell the story that I want to write. But even then, I'll sit back and think, okay, what prompted them to focus on this part of the story? You know, is there something there that there may be... Um, you know, they're misdiagnosing, you know, or they're, they're getting, they're prescribing the wrong treatment, but they are identifying a bona fide issue that I should address. So, um, yeah, you know, with experience, you learn how to set that internal filter. Um, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I think that's the best answer I could give you. It does. It it makes perfect sense. Um, so that will bring me to my last question for you, Ian, and it's it's a pretty open ended question. So I'll I'll apologize beforehand, but 
Um, what's some advice or what's an idea that you can give someone who just wants to become a better storyteller? Is there is there anything that you've noticed in your storytelling that's been like a, a really good habit to practice that you think would be beneficial for others to know about? Well, here, I, I guess kind of three things. Um, not to suggest that I always take my own advice, but uh, <laughs> of course, the, the first thing that every writer says, right, is, is, you know, the most important job of a writer is to write. So, and I'm a big believer that every sentence you write is practice for the next sentence. Um, you know, as I said earlier, sentences are the atoms of storytelling. Um, so, it, now having said that, I'm not the kind of person who, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't force myself to write every single day, particularly when I'm in the sort of brainstorming mode when I'm coming up, formulating a new project. So I'm not draconian about that. But, you know, the skill does have to be exercised on a regular basis. Um, and, and the more the better. Um, so so that's, that's one thing. Um, I definitely believe in, you know, writing to the heart. You know, if every writer has something that's sort of burning inside them that they want to tell. Um, so don't don't hoard the magic bullet. You know, I a, a very good piece of advice I got early on was because um, I, I had these sort of ideas for books, but I was reticent to tackle them because I felt like I had not honed my skills enough yet. And I was told, you know, don't don't hoard your magic bullet. Um, you know, write what's calling to you. Um, so I, I think I think that's also very important because um, writing is hard and lonely and often unrewarding. So you have to try to have as much fun as you can, you know, on a day-to-day basis. Um, and then, and then my third thing would be, um, you know, don't be afraid to challenge yourself, and don't be afraid of setting obstacles for yourself. My, I feel like I do my best work when I identify some skill that I want to improve, or when I artificially impose some some obstacle on myself. You know, these scenes can only be written in this way, or um, this character can only speak in a 1930s detective patois. Um, it makes the work harder, but it makes the end product better, I think. Well, I sincerely want to thank you so much for joining me, Ian. And this, again, this that was, good, was science fiction great interview, and fantasy and you had author a lot of Ian Trugillis. I truly hope you enjoyed this, this episode of One hey, Thing Led to Another. Uh, we have more episodes coming practice. up, uh, hopefully the next week, if not uh, the week after. Again, my life is getting a bit crazy when it comes to returning from my last semester of college and then also getting married because apparently I decided to do everything all at once. Not too shocking if you know me. But either way, again, I hope you enjoyed it. Please reach out please reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter and then go to, please navigate to my website noafenko.net for some other projects and other stories to check out if your heart so wishes. Again, thank you so much. Uh, Hope you enjoyed the program and check back next week. And remember, as always, and and especially for this episode, storytelling is best done together. Thank you.